This is the Manips and Sips podcast show, featuring two fellowship-trained, board-certified orthopedic and sports physical therapists. Join us as we talk all things physical therapy, manual therapy, performance, business, education, research, and of course, Sips. Hey everyone, this is the Nips and Sips podcast show featuring me. I'm Dr. Jeremy Boyd and my usual partner in crime over there, Dr. Brandon Cruz. Today we're going to be talking about ACL graft choices. A lot of debate of which is the best choice uh, for a specific clientele, specific athletes, uh, genders. Uh, so we're going to discuss that, our experiences, some of the research behind it, and uh, take it from there. But before we get into it, Brandon, how's it going? Going well, Jer. Uh, this is a great topic, especially in lieu of our upcoming uh, Mother of All ACL courses that uh, I'll be launching in uh, a few weeks. That we're already in February. I mean, time is oh, time is flying by. Crazy. Um, this course is in what two weeks—the nineteenth and twentieth, or whatever that that weekend uh, is. Uh, early morning episode today, guys, uh, from of course country. So uh, I'm not at least drinking booze, but I'm, I'm drinking coffee. But I have this awesome cup that my uh, my sister got me when she was. Uh, and Disney, it's a genie one. All powerful greatness has been summoned. Very <laughs> fitting. I will be summoning my greatness and my powers today for this podcast. Oh, that's um, awesome. And then a uh, quick shout out, my uh, her daughter, my sister's daughter, my niece, uh, just had her 10th birthday uh, two days ago. So uh, happy birthday to her as well. Oh, happy birthday. Which one is it? I think I met the whole squad. Uh, uh, yeah, she's actually uh, the oldest one by a couple months. Um, she uh, It's Ayana. Okay. Uh, she's turning 10. So now a pre-teenager. Oh, uh, she's, uh, she's my sweetheart right there. So oh. happy birthday to her. And then we have happy a birthday, birthday this upcoming weekend. All right. So I'm also, uh, also not drinking, uh, is early morning episode. Uh, shout out to Rowan. Uh, this is, I'm having iced coffee today. Um, so time, bro, huh? Since the winter time, you have a nice coffee. Oh, it was. It's it's raining out here. It's actually pretty warm out. Uh, okay. I worked out this morning, so sometimes when I work out, I don't really want anything, especially hot. I got so, you. Uh, yeah, Rowan, shout out Rowan, as we're on Rowan's campus. So, but nice coffee to start off the day. But yeah, I guess to kind of get it going now that we uh, don't have any alcohol to talk about or rate. Uh, I don't think I'm gonna rate my coffee. It's pretty pretty even keel here, but. Um, Brandon, anything, uh, let's, uh, I guess first talk about experiences or anything like that. Um, maybe a preference of beginning, and then we can kind of talk about the nit and gritty of specifics of, um, of ACL graphs and everything like that. Yeah. I, I mean, I'd say that to start uh, a good baseline is to understand what's out there and, you know, the, the top two would be your, uh, patella tendon graft and the uh, hamstring graft. Mm-hmm. Uh, you also have your, your allo graph, which would come from a donor, uh, in the end, just so you guys know, I mean, this is, this is a decision the surgeon's going to make. Mm-hmm. Um, and if it's a, a really good surgeon, probably the surgeon and the patient, you know, maybe the surgeon might educate the patient on why or why not there, they think we should go with a certain graft, mm-hmm. uh, different, uh, I guess different hypotheses out there and Jerry, um, you know, you're the sports PT and obviously ACL is, is a passion of yours. Uh, if you're a sprinter or a runner, um, they recommend the patella tendon one. So you don't lose the, some, some hamstring strength. You might lose about 5% of hamstring strength, um, you know, after a hamstring graft. So they might recommend that, but unless you're an elite sprinter, does that matter? 
you know, mm-hmm. th- those conversations are there. So I'll let you, uh, you handle that. And then maybe the, uh, the older patient that's uh, perhaps not as athletic or not as active, maybe they get the donor graft, but understand mm-hmm. there's complications, rejection, uh, maybe some infection, things like that, that might come along with that one. Uh, so these are all things that maybe you should be aware of as a PT to understand if you're getting one of these, what are the, the likelihoods and the ratios and what type of outcome to expect? Or if a patient's coming to you unsure of what to get and things like that, you can now have this conversation uh, with them. And I think regardless, and Jeremy, you might have some stats on this. We'll talk about the uh, the retail rate of uh, ACL in general and um, the retail rate and then the return uh, to previous level activity is not as high as you would think with such a gold standard of a surgery that is done and so highly coveted, um, you know, so much research, time and money resources have gone into understanding um, this type of injury and surgery, but yet our outcomes aren't where they need to be. And does that fall on us as the PTs, on the surgeon, on the patient, all the above? Uh, where do we fit into this? So I think that's, uh, that's where we should really be, uh, I guess, start with this conversation, actually even progress into the conversation. But uh, what's, what's your experience? Uh, what do you like? What are you noticing on type of uh, retailers and things like that? Yeah, um, and uh, I think this is this is where it gets important um, on the importance of, I guess, uh, emphasizing prehab. Um, I think a lot of people think, oh, prehab, it's a, it's a time, you know, just strengthen the muscles and, you know, strain the knee or get the range of motion and prep them for surgery. I think prehab is the most important part just for education purposes uh, to discuss mostly you know, graft choices, and then just mental preparation for the surgery and the whole phases and the whole journey of ACL. Uh, still to this day, it still baffles me that most people go, they get the surgery, had no idea what to expect of just the rigor of it and or the length of it. Like I've had some people go in and they're like, well, I thought I'd be done in a couple months. I'm like, this is ACL. I thought this is like common knowledge. I, I figure they teach you at high schools at this point. Um, so I think it's important, um, you know, based off of what Brandon was saying, you know, use this as an opportunity, if you can, to discuss potential options for graph choices. Um, obviously, as Brandon mentioned before, it is really up to the surgeon, uh, but you can, I've, I've swayed some patients some ways. Uh, I'd say actually, a lot of the most recent ones I have. Um, I, as Brian said, the most two popular ones are that uh, bone tendon bone of the patellar, or I'm also seeing quadriceps is becoming more popular. I think the last two, two or three I've had have had a, a quad tendon uh, autograft. Um, still up in the air with it. My first one, uh, which was uh, just at the start of COVID, um, I, I guess I had a, left a bad taste in my mouth. He, he's great. He's playing uh, semi-pro basketball. Um, so he advanced himself to a higher level of playing. Um, he also had an ALL repair and a meniscal repair. So he probably had a lot more going on. And that's probably why like things were a little bit slower initially. And that's probably why I was a little against it at first. Um, but yeah, you have the quadriceps, the patellar tendon, which is, I believe, the gold standard. Um, and then the hamstrings allograph. And now we have something that I saw at a conference, ooh, like probably 2015, 16, uh, the bridge enhance um, 
uh, ACL repair uh, or the bear, um, which they're trying to take the like your native um, ACL, um, taking you know string essentially repairing it, um, which is is pretty difficult. Um, and you know very very few select individuals. It has to be a timing thing to do. Uh, some of the earlier uh, outcomes for it seem to be better. Uh, a little less intense in the earlier stages and a quicker return to certain things of, you know, getting back into like running and such, uh, which a lot of people are like, oh, it's three months, but reality, it's probably four or five months, but these individuals seem to kind of respond quicker. It's a little less intense mm -hmm. on the knee initially. Um, but overall retail rates, I think have, have been pretty similar, even amongst them. I have to look more into that. There's really not as much literature on that. But yeah, going into that, um, you know, we're talking about, you know, stats. Go ahead, Brandon. Real, real quick, with, with the hamstring, what muscle, just for our audience, um, is most commonly, um, or what part of the hamstring is the graph most commonly taken from? They usually take the semis uh, or semitennis and the gracilis. So mm -hmm. a lot of people just think it's just that, um, but the gracilis gets involved as well. Um, so knowing that, um that's that's something incorporate into your rehab uh they say um there's like a sweet spot uh, at the six to eight week marker uh where you shouldn't go essentially ham on hamstrings for your post-op uh, uh mm -hmm. hamstring autographs um just because it's you know reintegrating and that sort of stuff the likelihood of injury to the hamstring itself uh gets increased but um yeah, in my opinion with that, uh, especially for female athletes, um, they're, you know, they're typically having difficulty with, you know, posterior chain and hamstring. So um, is it something that we want to pull more out of, you know, it, yeah. you know, you're taking a good chunk, especially your double bundle. So yeah. there's a single bundle, double bundle, um, the double bundle. So you're taking essentially you know, your hamstring tendon, and then you're doubling it um, versus a single. The, and that's know, been e equated to being like the gold standard 1B, the double bundle to the, the patellograph. Yeah, I think the double bundle is superior to the single bundle. And there's some studies on the tensile strength of, yeah. of the graft choices. And in theory, the double bundle i believe was the most superior like with like compared to a native a patellar tendon a single bundle double bundle i don't know if the quad tendon was in that one i can't remember i just remember who was the winner um the 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 double bundle was the most superior retail rates though amongst them all um uh, they're pretty similar yeah. um uh, why do you think the, that is so so it, I don't know if I'm digressing here, but no, no, on retail rates, it's a big, I mean, uh, I, I think underreported, right? What What's the uh, the stat, like 25 to 40% retail rate? Yeah. Right? Um, that, that's pretty high. Like, we're, you know, on the high end, we're talking, you know, 40%, almost 50% that's retail, that's either retail rate for, for one of these. So where are we missing this? Are we choosing the wrong patients to get surgery? Should we mm -hmm. opt with the not the COPA route or is our rehab failing them or are we progressing them too fast and letting them return to sport too, too quick? 
I think it's a combination of all. I think you hit the nail on the head on. I believe those are the big, big points of, you know, why, why we essentially suck at, I really don't think, I mean, it is what it is. Say, man, we, you know, as a whole therapy profession is, uh, is not progressing this, this type of patient. Well, no. And if you look at the state, I mean, only, only 55% of people return to their previous level or their elite level. If they're not elite athletes, it's 40%. So 40%. That's worse than a coin flip. So should we be should we be telling people this? Like, you know, yeah, you'll get the surgery, but you're there's only a half a chance that you'll actually get back to what you were doing. That and that's definitely not the perception. Mm-hmm. Most people perceive that 90% of individuals who get the surgery perceive they will be back to, to almost completely normal. And that's definitely not and, the and, case. And they think they're gonna be back in like two months. Yeah. Month and that's, like, I'm like, and they're like, I have a brand new knee. Yeah, no, you don't. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's it's the reconstructed. It's not revamped. It's not uh, enhanced. Uh, yeah. So We're not there yet in our technology. No, no. I mean, we've definitely made some yeah, some headway for sure. I mean, if you look over the span of the years, it went from you know career ending to a two year process. Uh, to accelerated where we're trying to get them done in six to nine months. So we then find out that, you know, no, we suck at this. This is not good. We're, we're causing more tears back down to like a nine month to two years. Like the moon group suggests um, moon is part of like HSS and some of the studies um, that, you know, especially adolescents should be two years. Like we're, we're clearly not figuring out and over all these years, really the numbers haven't changed. And, you know, unless, unless you're in an area with a surgeon that's, you know, maybe doesn't specialize in ACL reconstructions and stuff like that. I haven't seen a ton of like complete F ups uh, from a surgical. They do happen, you know, put the graft into vertically, you don't follow yeah. the, the footprint um, infections, whatever it may be. Uh, but I, le- I believe a lot of it is, you know, what Brandon was saying. It's, it's, it's on the rehab side of things. Um, are we pushing our patients enough? Are we uh, assessing them to make sure they're ready for, uh, you know, return to sport um, and especially set- assessing them often? Um, are we preventing all the bad things that could happen down the line early enough uh, I think there's just not enough training. I don't know about you, Brandon, in my PT school, I think it was maybe mentioned for about an hour, maybe. I don't even know if it was an hour, to be honest. Um, not yeah, not yeah. knock on my school or anything like that. Uh, I love them dearly and that sort of stuff. It's not obviously, they got a million things to teach and ACLs, uh, you know, one of them. Um, but it, it wasn't that much. And we, if it's one of the top orthopedic procedures, you know, should we invest more into it or, you know, obviously going into it after, you know, post doctorate work, um, because it is something that requires uh, in-depth knowledge, in my opinion. Uh, and I believe that's the reason why our outcomes are not, are not that good. I was doing a recent thing on our outcomes. Like my personally, we're in the upper nineties. Um, We've had our couple issues and I'll mention that during the course because I'm a man who believes on, uh, you know, learning from mistakes and stuff. But, you know, what are we doing different? You know, is it, you know, 
you know, just luck. I think over, you know, a span of eight, nine years, we can kind of push past luck. Um, but it's, it's, I think it's tying in all these sort of things. And me personally, I, again, we talk about graph choices and that sort of stuff. At this point, I don't really care about graph choices. I'll, I'll deal with whatever I get. Um, I did have a tibialis anterior graft once of an aloe graft uh, tendon, which was uh, pretty weird. Uh, and I'm pretty sure that individual was extraordinarily lax in the beginning. I thought he had posterior lateral corner injury as well. And I kept trying to tell the surgeon at the time, uh, and this is going way back, um, and the graft failed like he didn't have an incident but just nothing worked and then he saw i told him to go see a second opinion and he was like there's it's really not even holding up together um so besides that um whether you're a quad a hamstring a patellar tendon uh haven't got a bear yet um you know it's really the the rehab in my opinion i'll put it all on our shoulders uh, I'll, I'll be a man enough to admit it as long as they're not coming in you know completely jacked up um, and I've, we've had people with, you know, 30 degree knee flexion contractures and we've managed to put, make it happen and get them back to sport. And I, I used to think that's never, never possible. Um, so it's reality of like what you're doing. And I think that's, especially in the earlier phases, um, you know, versus, you know, anybody can, you know, do sports specific stuff, which is, you know, telling them to play their sport. Um, and all those funny, fancy stuff. And we do that sort of stuff, but it's getting to that point, um, I think is where the real bread and butter meat and potatoes are at. Yeah. Give me yeah. one second. I'm actually trying to pull up, uh, cause you, you talked about, uh, rehabbing and timelines and, uh, I'm just going to pull up a, a generic protocol here. Um, uh, I, I think we, as PTs rely too much on these, these protocols, um, don't get me wrong. We have to respect the surgeon. They know what's going on. They've, they've created, um, these protocols for a reason. There's validity to them, you know, that should be a part of what you consider a part yeah. keyword. Uh, you, it's going to vary patient to patient. Not everyone's going to follow the cert, the same timeline. You need to be about to, to identify, you know, the patients that are lacking and maybe the patients that can progress you know, through things maybe a little faster, but also those ones that can progress fast to pump the brakes because you don't want to put too much stress too soon. All right. So you can't just solely go by the protocol. I mean, what are you going to do? A patient comes in, you follow the protocol to a T, you know, you're a little negligent. You do to something and be like, oh, I just followed the protocol. I mean, that, you can't base your, your decision-making, especially as an autonomous practitioner on, I just follow the protocol. Like there's no rationale with that. Um, what about the patients that you don't get protocols for? Like, a ton of those, they just come in, right? And this is not even just ACLs. This is any type of surgical protocol. Shoulders, I think shoulders and knees are probably like the, the two most common surgeries where, you know, we don't have, um, you know, a protocol. We, we rely too much on it. Instead of understanding, like Jeremy said, markers, uh, impairments, timelines, um, you know, again, these are generalities, like our biggest predictor of if the patient gets knee extension is their pre-op, their extension preoperatively, if I'm saying that correctly, um, if that makes sense, right? So what type of extension they have before they go into surgery? And that's where Jeremy was talking about, uh, you know, a lot of it is prehab, 
right? We need to get these patients, you know, at zero, at least, you know, uh, there before we send them in. Do they have good quad control, right? If they don't have a lag, again, that's another uh, indication of if they're going to be successful. Do they have good quad control preoperatively? If they don't have those, they need to not be going to surgery Mm -hmm. first. And I think that one's on the surgeon. Yeah, uh, I've pushed back the surgery. Uh, yeah, pushed push push back, back the surgery and recommended one to be pushed back. Yeah, and the patient went ham. Like I was just like, I don't think you're ready. It's yeah. it, it's it's wouldn't be in your best interest. And it was over like a COVID sort of like exposure. This was like okay. exposure. Remember exposure times? Like everybody was exposed, so it came away. Yeah, and it was like or Delta, early Delta. I can't remember which freaking variant. Um, but I was like, listen, you're good. You got exposed. You weren't getting the therapy i've measured some things i don't think you're quite ready and then she spent like the next three four days getting ready and then the surgeon was like no you're, you're good to go but there's been other times where you i've made the, the call of like you know let's give it a couple more weeks um yeah. it's not worth it look at saquon barkley and let's well, talk about how his career ended up he waited over a month to go and that's he's in the nfl and his quads are bigger than my entire trunk um, but he waited over a month because I, I assume he wasn't ready. Yeah. Uh, you know, going to, uh, athletes. So I think the worst thing we, we keep doing, you know, is, is comparing to professional athletes or mm-hmm. collegiate, you know, high level collegiate athletes, you know, AP, I think we've said it before on the podcast, you know, is the worst thing that probably could have happened to ACL surgeries. Oh, he came back in eight months and that's that timeline because that surgery was over 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, where we began to, oh, this can be done faster. No, he's the outlier, not the norm, mm-hmm. right? He's also rehab, you know, besides the fact he's a genetic freak, he's, he's rehabbing 13 hours a day. There's yeah. no ordinary patient that we get that's rehabbing 13 hours a day. You're lucky they rehab, you know, three to five hours a week. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that's, you know, probably less than 1% of a total week's time. You know, those three hours you get with a patient or four hours, even if you're, you're nice. Um, and let them stay longer just because you know it's good for their care. Um, you know, back to the knee extension thing. Here's a stat: forty-eight percent of patients with knee extension loss at four weeks require arthroscopy to achieve normal extension. So now they're going in again to clear up scar tissue and things like that because because they don't have it. Uh, yeah. I want to touch back to what you're talking about, Jeremy. Um, if tunnels are, are you know um, drilled properly and they, uh, this is a little clinical pearl for you and the the audience here. If you guys are studying for your OCS or SES. If a uh, tunnel is drilled and ACL is put too vertically, what's going to happen, right? They're going to get uh, locked at 90 degrees and I can be able to break 90 degrees. So that's, um, that'll be on one of your tests. If you guys are studying out for board certifications, if you guys want to specialize in ACLs, that's a clinical pearl, just know and understand. Uh, you want more information on this stuff, go to OrthoBullets. It's free. I did a lot of my time studying on that website. It's really actually made for surgeons. Um, Good. bunch of good cases there, but you're studying for a board certification. Uh, you want to go the extra mile and understand the other side of things, the surgical mm-hmm. side of things. It's a great resource for you guys. So uh, OrthoBolts, and I have no like financial interest in them. Just yeah. uh, just sharing some some knowledge out there for you guys. Speaking of surgeries, I think it's always a good idea to, especially for ACE, uh, really for anybody with a surgery, but to get the op report, not just the script and the protocol. Because you'd be surprised on how many people actually – think they have a graft a certain type and then you're looking at them like that doesn't look like the normal incision area 
and you look at the op report, it's like a different one. So sometimes they send in the wrong protocol. Um, so, and it's always good just to see what they did. Um, a lot of the protocols or the cert, uh, scripts are just like, oh, you know, left ACL, you know, hamstring autograft. And then you read the op report and they're like, they had a meniscal repair. They did, they cleaned up some chondral lesions and that's not reported. And you're starting to wonder like, why is this person off to a slower start or whatever it may be? Why is there more swelling here? Um, so that's always a, you know, a good idea. Um, speaking of some other things in the surgical realm and, and Brandon brought up, um, you know, loss of extension and everything like that, the infamous cyclops lesion, maybe we can have a separate episode on that. Um, but a lot of that, I believe in a, in a study that might've been Shelbourne, um, people who didn't have their, uh, full extension, symmetrical extension, not even just to zero. Um, so if they're hyper on one side, hyper on the other, um, I think they were two to three, 2.3 times for five times um, at risk for a cyclops lesion. So cyclops lesion is, a, you know, especially a difficulty in extension, more pain in the anterior aspect. It's like scar tissue, typically in the mid substance of the ACL. There is some people who are asymptomatic and have it. Um, but I was listening to recently a podcast maybe it was JSPT or something like that, Eric Mira, who's a sports PT. And he was saying, you know, that Cyclops leader, and they just, they come and they got like, you're, you just get them or you don't get them uh, sort of thing. Uh, and there's plenty of studies that actually argue that. Um, I would say clinically, not to say we're, you know, God's gift to the world, never had a presence of a Cyclops lesion, never needed an MUA on anybody. Um and in his thing is like, oh yeah, they come, whatever it may be. I think it's a, it's 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 the, it's not a chicken or egg thing. It's if you're not doing the right things, and I'm gonna knock on wood. So hopefully, I'll get like ten cyclops lesions starting next week or something. If you're not doing the right things early on, and they have maybe hamstring hypertonicity, lack of extension, whatever you want to call it. Um, and they're not walking on a right, I think that, that cyclops lesion develops. That's me. I don't have anything to say to prove that, but we know individuals that don't get full extension end up getting that. Um, so that's another thing. It doesn't matter what graft you have in there. I don't think there's been any research to support one graft develops cyclops lesions to another. I think it's really what you do in the earlier stages, and that includes pre-op and those early, early couple of weeks. Um, but uh, on the on the topic of surgeries i got heated about that whole concept yeah, yeah like obviously no it's, it's great dude this is this is a great podcast to have this is this is your your baby uh obviously you created a, a stellar course uh coming up which i'm pumped about it obviously is your passion so please rant away um you know i, I really think pts need to uh, spend more time in the boring phases as, uh, as we're having the, this conversation um, and uh, I have my resources up and, and just kind of thinking out loud um, and just seeing, like I have a, a, we have a patient now, it's not mine, it's, it's in the clinics, but he was so, somewhere else before and he's at six, five and a half weeks. He's lacking extension and, you know, a conversation is having my, P, my PT is treating him is like, hey, we need to focus on these two things only right now, uh, motion and, and um, his quad lag. And it's a, it's a subtle quad lag. Right. Where probably most PTs would just, all right, yeah, let's move on to the next thing. It's close enough. Like, no, we need to spend more time on the boring phases. 
make sure you get full knee extension and not just zero. Like you said, it has to be symmetrical to the other person's knee, right? We all have differences. And then that knee extension and also phase two, building up adequate strength, building up motor control, building up endurance. I think, you know, everyone loves the allure of, oh, sports PT. I want to work with athletes. I want to do the fun stuff, right? Cutting, agility, um, you know, pushing them, juking, you know, obviously you post a lot of videos of, you know, your, your uh, later phases where you're trying to mimic, you know, in-game scenarios, in-practice scenarios, but you can't do that at the expense of lacking the foundation and basics, you know, talking, again, circling back to trying to speed this rehab up. I mean, this is really a year and a half to two year injury and recovery. Um, you know, even, even professional athletes say it's not till their second year where they start to begin to feel normal again, right? There's a re-ligamentization process, re-ligamentization, yeah, I said that right, um, where that graft needs to undergo and change properties, right? That just takes time. There's no way to expedite that. Mm-hmm. Quadriceps deficits up to 44%, probably close to 50% deficits of quadriceps strength at the one year mark that cuts in half by year two, right? So that's at 12 months, but yet we're ready and rushing to have this patient run and do agility and cutting and jumping by three to four months. Yeah. Why? Because it's fun. It's sexy, right? The patient doesn't want to spend all this time, two, three months doing boring stuff, but that's the stuff that's going to make the rest of the rehab Mm -hmm. process easier. And then is, to come to us and, and, you know, utilizing some tests and metrics, some KPIs, mm-hmm. um, Val sport court test, the less uh, test, the Y balance test, try and get as much objective data to see if the, the they're symmetrical left to right side um, before we really start, um, you know, progressing these patients and returning them to play in sport. Even some of those return to sport protocols, and Jeremy, you and I have had cut discussions on this and we're like, no, I, we, I don't agree with the research where a triple hop test and, and triple jump test and single leg hop test and all those jumping tests, 85% symmetrical. That's all they require before they go return to sport. 85%. No, I want in the nineties and me personally, I say 95%. Yeah, that's I've my recently threshold. bumped up to 98. You I was like 95 for a while, and I'm like 98. Yeah, you even go 98. And, yeah. you know, if you can't be symmetrical, then, under, you know, breaking that down to the patient, you're putting yourself at greater risk. Mm-hmm. They may not like you. Fine, you don't like me. You want to go somewhere else. You know, you want to roll the dice, go ahead. Mm-hmm. But then they're going to be coming through your doors again. Um, or yeah. they'll probably just choose another office because they don't want to go tell you that you're right. <laughs> But, and that pre- that's pre- that's got to be the most heartbreaking thing is like you didn't do your due diligence, let's say in little things. Oh, close enough on their knee extension. All right, great. You know, let's keep keep going. We've done this long enough. Or you know, it's their numbers are good enough. You're only cheating yourself, and you know, in that case, as a clinician, you're cheating yourself as a clinician. But you are really cheating the individual, um, and you're putting them at risk. Um, and if you phrase it that way. I'm going to let you go, um, but we know we're at risk that you were, we're putting you at risk, but I'm okay with that. You're okay with that, right? And if you phrase it like that, then most people are like, no, no, absolutely not. Um, I do it in a nicer way. I just say, listen, I really care about you. We've grinded it out for whatever, how many months, eight, nine, 10 months. Um, you know, there's still some things that I think we'd be beneficial to work on. 
you know, go do everything with the team, go do this and that, just let's not go to a full game or whatever it may be, or set, set things. I, I give There's them battle plans. Um, and I'm like, all right, we just need to keep working on this. Need a little bit more time. You had this, that was an extra compounding factor or whatever it may be. Um, but yeah, don't, don't, don't F over your patience. That's, that's it, you know, um, whatever it may be in the earlier stages or the very, very final stages, you know, Brandon hit the nail on the head where it's like, yeah, it's nice to do all the sexy stuff, but that's not really, really necessary for us. I mean, we do it in my facility because I have the means to do it and everything like that, but the real bread and butter, our real worth is the earlier phases. Um, if I had to be honest, and that's another limitation is like, yeah, you can look up all this stuff on social media and how you can follow us and you can see some cool exercises here and there. We put, I think once a week is like these weirdish sort of combination of, of something we want to do plus an impairment uh, that the patient has. Um, but it's really the, you know, what makes the patient, how they get to that point is all those earlier phase stuff uh, and knowing how to manage it from a, you know, joint perspective, neuro perspective, psychological perspective. Um, and I think that's, you know, gravely missed. Um, and it really, I've heard some PTs are like all the way to the end. They just keep it boring as can be is hinge squat deadlift and just keep building strength. And they let the, the patient do the stuff on the field with their teams. And that's, that's fine. But they got to that point by making sure they, they hit everything early on. But yeah, you, Jeremy, you brought up a point and, um, you know, phrasing it. I'm actually okay with the way you phrase it. Hey, you know, you still have some deficits, which are going to put you at risk. Are you okay with that? We'll just kind of return you. And they're like, no, like some, some patients need to hear that. Mm -hmm. um, and I think as PTs, and I've had this conversation with a, a different clinician of mine, um, younger, just starting out, but like, you know, he's trying to be their friend and joke around with them and stuff. But like, what are you missing um, by doing that? And you you need to be the medical provider first. Mm -hmm. If you need to put the bricks on, put the bricks on. Don't rush them back just because they want to go back. The patient doesn't know what's good for them. Yep. All right. So um, not, you know, again, you want to try and meet them where you can. But if you're meeting them where you can because you want to just be nice and you don't want them to be mad at you, you're doing themselves a disservice. Like. In your professional opinion, you, you have to kind of stick to your gun sometimes. And sometimes it's you being the bad guy, mm -hmm. but it's for the best interest at the patient. So, um, you know, you, especially younger therapists, you guys need to understand that you can't just not want to be the bad guy and say yes, just to appease them to make them happy. Like, mm -hmm. no, they'll get over it yep. and they'll realize that what you're saying is for their betterment. Yep. Trust me, that's way better than you saying, hey, go back. And then they go back way too soon and they blow out their knee again. Yep. All right. The, the stats are high enough. We just showed you the stats, you know, 25 to 40 or 50% retail rate. That's already high enough. Uh, mm. We don't need to, you know, predispose these people even more um, to it because we didn't do our due diligence or we're too scared to, to be the bad guy. Um, you know, we have to lay things out for people. Yeah. Um, or even retail rates. Yeah. I mean, not retail, contralateral tears or, yeah. you know, 30% of that um so that's even i mean imagine how heartbreaking that is you do yeah, one I, I and then tear the other years ago um towards the other side we rehabbed the crap out of him thought we did a good job measured everything he was just playing pickup football with his friends probably about a year and a half later uh just under two years it was a little more than a year and a half but just under two years 
uh, tore the other one. I was like, geez, you know, and now I'm looking at, well, all right, what did I miss? Mm-hmm. You know, where, where did I go wrong? Was this avoidable? Yeah. Um, some things are, some things not, but you should at least be questioning yourself. You know, where could you be better? Yeah. You know, everyone's listening at that point, you know, a year and a half later, contralateral tear and Brandon, is there anything, what could have he done better? What could have done Terrible English on my part on live uh, stuff, but uh, that's that's the way we need to think about things. I think too, we don't take enough accountability for contralateral tears, re tears. Um, when those stats out, I'm gonna put up for my course and everything like that. I count those. There's an uh, individual that unfortunately tore at four months in the rehab. Um, out there, I was adamant about like, hey, make sure you're not doing anything. Everything that you do, you do in the clinic. And he decided like his friends were playing basketball. And he's like, I, I just need to do it. He needed it for his own psyche and he did it and he re-injured. And that's my fault. Um, mm. Even though I was adamant, I'm always like, hey, listen, especially in the earlier stages, once you get the six, seven months, everything's looking good. I'm like, hey, you can, I'll reintegrate you into practice and that sort of stuff. But I didn't say the right combination of things to make sure he didn't um, go and do something like play with his, his friends and everything like that. Um, so like, listen to that, you know, those sort of things some clinics, they, all they see is ACLs. It's like, I don't care if they're retailers, a couple of tears, no, take some ownership of, you know, really, you know, do self-reflection. We always talk about self-reflection, look at your ACL stats. If you see enough of them, um, even if you only see two or three in a year, you know, look at them. How are they doing? Are they fully back to sport? Uh, did they suffer any injuries, uh, or other injuries, even things unrelated to the ACL, um, take some accountability, try and get, you know, as close to hundred percent of returning to previous level and no other injuries. Um, so I thought that was a great point and a great accountability. And I think that's a theme of a lot of our podcasts is accountability to ourselves and to our patients. So great job, Brian. Awesome. Thanks, Jerry. I think, uh, yeah, it kind of wraps it up. Unless you have any other, uh, <laughs> clinical pros. I mean, obviously this is a topic we can, uh, talk for hours on. Yeah. We are going to be talking for hours on it in a, in a couple, a uh, couple weeks with a two day course. Uh, but unless you have anything pressing, I think, uh, that's a good point to stop. And um, if you guys are, are in the North or New Jersey, South Jersey, Philly. Uh, Philadelphia area, Maryland, uh, you know, go go on our website iosmt.com and sign up for um, you know our two-day course. Jeremy uh, put a lot of time into this, and I'm excited for uh, for what we have in store for you guys. Yeah, we'll be going through the, everything from imaging to um, video breakdown of injuries, just in case if you're like. If you're more sports like on field and you just don't know how to recognize it, you know, more of your ability to know when the test is recognizing that looked like an ACL tear um, to the prehab, to the manual therapy, to performance-based manual therapy, more further down the line uh, to strength and conditioning, power development, all this sort of stuff and all the nit and gritty research that I'm sure you guys are all going to love. Um, and also psychology of things, because uh, I think that's that's truly, truly important. You can't have someone who's been taken out of their sport for nine months to a year plus, and I expect them to have some psychological disturbances of sorts. But um, yeah, hope to see you guys there. And uh, thanks for tuning in. And uh, cheers, everybody. Cheers, thanks for tuning into this episode of Nips and Sips. 
If you liked what you listened to, please follow and subscribe to us on all major social media and podcast platforms. Please rate us on Apple Podcasts if you enjoyed the show. Interested in one of our courses? Go to www.iosmt.com. Interested in business and private practice mentorship and advice? Visit us at therehabcoaches.com. As always, feel free to reach out to us if you have any questions or recommendations, whether that be clinical or SIPs. At Manips and SIPs, at The Decent Doctor, and at Think Like a Fellow. Thanks for tuning in and cheers, everyone.